0: The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time.
2: Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us, and great to have my co hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great discussion ahead. Phil, over to you.
1: Thanks, John. I thought this week we'd talk about a paper that came out. Well, actually, I don't know when this was released. I forgot to look it up. I think it's pretty recent 2010. It was that long ago? It sure was. Oh my goodness! All right, well, I don't know why this came to my attention recently, then, but that explains some of the mystery. Anyway, the paper is called "Overconfidence, Underreaction, and Warren Buffett's Investments," which is obviously catnip. When I see a headline like that, you know that I'm gonna download this paper and read it. So, um, the parts that jumped out to me and the the parts that I want your reaction to are are twofold. So there there were a couple of interesting parts. I guess I'll start with the good and we'll we'll circle back to the bad. So they actually looked at, they, they started with the 13F data in April of 1980 uh, when it first became available and went through the end of 2006. And there were a couple thousand observations in, in terms of individual stock positions each quarter. Uh, in that sample set. So what would your guess be of the median holding period for an individual security? And again, I'm assuming that these data are correct. I did not go try to independently verify these, uh, the math here, but I'm assuming these uh, professors did did this correctly. And it it seems to line up kind of with what I've observed over time, but I still thought the numbers were a little surprising. So let's play a little guessing game. What do you guys guess the median holding period would be?
0: I can't guess. I've got to uh, read the paper and I haven't. Oh, you read the paper. Yeah, and all oh, all I right. cheated. John, did you read it? I did not
2: read it. Uh, so I guess I can yeah, venture, you have to be guess. The, yeah, you
1: have to be the guinea
2: pig on these
0: three. And or before four John things, guesses, so. I'll just say, Phil, when you tell me this paper is interesting and you give a title there, I'm going to go out and read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. <laughs> so,
2: so, So we're talking holding period.
1: Yeah, from from I believe the first disclosure of the purchase to a complete exit, it it just it doesn't actually define
0: the holding period, but that would be my assumption. Okay, and I do think he adjusted for they they specified in the paper there are instances where Buffett was able to delay yeah. disclosure, so I think it Correct. adjusted for that. That's the one tweak.
1: Yeah, there were okay. uh, there were shockingly enough there were two hundred and seventy five observations for which Berkshire asked for and received SEC approval for confidential treatment when they were building a position.
2: Okay, so I'm going to guess between three and five years.
1: Interestingly enough, it's just one year, which was a little bit lower. Uh, I, would have wow. guessed about, I would have guessed about two years. So how many of the, the stocks that, that are part of the, the sample size do you think were sold within six months? So first purchase to complete exit, I guess, would be the definition. Of what percentage of the stocks by number were sold inside of six months?
2: Probably more than half.
1: Yeah, about 30%. So we're, we're kind of on both sides of it. And then there were actually only 20% of stocks by number held for more than two years. So I think the implication for me that that does back up 100% with you know, the anecdotal evidence that we all know about and we all see every day is that he changes his mind quite quickly and he is quite concentrated. So by the way, the the number of whole or the average number of holdings in the portfolio was 22 stocks in the equity book for the decade ended 1990, only 12 during the 1990s and 33 from 2000 to 2006. And the weighting of the stocks as a percentage of the total balance sheet. The total value of Berkshire actually went down pretty sharply over that period of time, as we all know. But anyway, the the point that that jumps out here is that, you know, for being such a long-term concentrated investor, which he undoubtedly is, and for good reason, it, the median holding period is still just one year. And there are plenty of cases where he buys something and then reverses course within you know 180 days i mean that's not a long period i don't think anyone would consider two quarters to be a particularly long holding period but then of the 20% of stocks that are held for more than 2 years which starts to get into a longer term horizon of course it, it, what goes unsaid here is that the dollar weighting of those 20% of stocks is enormous right because the the really really big giant winners are allowed to run and run and run for for years and decades right i mean the the really big outsized winners that you know started with things like American Express you go into Coke you go into now Apple things that have you know are, are probably going to be measured on average with a, a holding period of 1 to 2 decades not 1 to 2 quarters or 1 to 2 years so i think that's a really important point that most people might kind of think about but it goes a little bit unsaid i mean the part that starts to blow my mind though is in talking about all this kind of stuff uh, the the over the supposed overconfidence which we'll circle back to, and now the the concentration which the the authors at one breath call it uh, highly concentrated and in the next sentence refer to as under diversified. So they they said quote the apparent under diversification is consistent with the presumption of an information advantage, and they they refer to this over and over again. Uh, as an information advantage and having superior information and private information. And again, these terms are, are not defined, but I think, you know, they're they're well known enough that we can all presume to have the same understanding of what the authors mean. And I find it truly bizarre because I I think in every single case of these, you know, the big investments that matter and, and even the small ones that don't really matter, there's absolutely no, inside information. There's no private information. There's no superior information. Uh, there's certainly superior analysis. There's superior discipline. Uh, you know, there's a, a an intensely different level of approach. But to call it superior information and private information is, is just really bizarre and not true. Did you get that read from it, Elliot, when you went through it?
0: Yeah, you know, it's so awesome that you picked up on this because one of the things I wrote down to speak about was how bizarre that was, especially considering they talk about investors could have followed Buffett and didn't. And right. the analysts who downgraded the stock were exhibiting overconfidence. And I'm like, the clearest explanation for Buffett's edge is actually behavioral or time horizon. It is not information. Right. Because in some instances, the stocks underperformed over. Shorter periods of time, which is when you'd expect an information edge to manifest. And, uh, you know, the farther you go out, the less an information edge matters. Like, there, you know, what yeah. information today could make five years down the line returns happen? No, uh, it no, was I'm nonsense. Glad, I got yeah, mad I'm glad about I was. That.
1: I did too. I'm glad I wasn't the only one then. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself because, yeah, the, the point of the paper is right here in the second sentence of the abstract, the market seems to underreact to the revelation of Buffett's trades. And it goes on to say that, you know, from the sample period of 1980 through 2006, it was possible to achieve investment results similar to Buffett's own simply by following his trades as disclosed through Berkshire Hathaway. And again, the presumption here is that, okay, He's pretty good. Like they, they admit that that he's a quote, you know, superior stock picker. However, they they framed it, and that the chances of this being all luck over the entire duration of the sample period is less than one percent. At one point, I think they even assigned it like somewhere between one basis point and sixty-four basis points as the percent chance of this being all luck, attributed to Buffett, which is mind-boggling and hysterical that they put a number on it that precise using a Monte Carlo simulation, but I digress. Anyway, the point that I think really bothers the authors is that they say an efficient market in the semi-strong form would quickly drive equilibrium prices to reflect the information content of such disclosures, implying that no further benefit should be in the offing. And so their, their leap to conclusion here is that because there's a lot of other evidence for overconfidence, which they're for sure is, and we'll come back to that. Overconfidence is a huge deal, and that's why I was so excited to read this paper. But they take the exact wrong conclusion from this, which is that because the the market underreacts supposedly on the day or the week or the month of the disclosure of these trades, that demonstrates overconfidence. And the the evidence that they purport to put forward for all this is really thin and bizarre and completely lacking, in my opinion. And I, I just Found the whole thing really, really strange. I mean, they say what is it, what is unexplained is the underreaction. As an explanation that we pursue in this study is overconfidence on the part of market participants such as analysts and institutional fund managers. Blah blah blah. And because there's lots of other evidence for overconfidence, they just seem to tie it all back to this. With I mean, but there's no there there, right? I mean, did I did I miss some sort of grand revelation here, Elliot? That that was hiding. No, and I.
0: Similarly, thought that was bizarre. Uh, you know, I felt it was more an inclination, and it, to me, it all came down to time frame. To take a quick pop and say I'm out because that's not fundamental. <laughs> not so much in overconfidence that they knew more than Buffett, because on the revelation that Buffett has a position, often those stocks will rise, sometimes considerably in the short term. So if you believed it was worth, you know, like. 115 and it was trading at 100 and it's suddenly at 115 then shouldn't you move to the side that's not overconfidence (laughs)
1: yeah i believe me i know so i mean to further this point there's there's a section on page eight where they go into one of i think the most bizarre parts of a very bizarre argument about uh insider trading and and executives decisions and and so they cite some other paper that says that they they found evidence that links insiders option exercises and selling decisions to private information. And I will admit I didn't actually read that paper, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, yeah, that's probably legit like executive directors and officers of a company uh, certainly do have private inside information as you would certainly hope they do running the company. And that, information very legitimately informs their decision as to exercise options or sell stock in their own company. So (laughs) I'm on board with all that. But it says, and I quote, since it is likely that private information of insiders overlaps with that of Buffett when Berkshire Hathaway has a position in stocks of their companies, then these trades are most likely to follow Buffett's lead, albeit with little effect on market prices given the relatively small scale of such trading activity. We further note that to the extent insiders share the same private information as Buffett with respect to their firms, overconfidence in the form of overweighting private information could conceivably add to the prospect of insiders appearing to mimic his trades. Like, I don't even understand what they're trying to argue here. Like, that just doesn't make any sense.
0: Nope. Nope. Uh, Yeah, that that was definitely bizarre. Um, I think part of the problem, one of the things I was thinking as I was reading this is, Okay, but there there's some really interesting takeaways. But for there's sure. a there's a fundamental problem with applying Fama French models to try to explain Buffett because you end up like with these mental gymnastics of backing into reasonings like you're talking about right now. Oh yeah, that was my no, explanation I'm, for it. I could go. No, I, yeah, keep I mean, going. I'll, no, I'll throw out some some other to, things after. To give you another example of
1: the type of thing where this is just a complete fish out of water, and again, I'm not trying to disparage the authors I, I have no idea who they are or uh, i briefly looked up their backgrounds but it, it doesn't really matter but this this is just a a unintentionally hilarious example of uh, an academic style paper trying to pound a square peg into a round hole like it's really bizarre there's a there's a line at the end of page 13 that says uh they're looking at the performance of berkshire hathaway as a whole uh you know kind of benchmarking it to the market and and comparing its quote abnormal return I in other words the excess return the the, the evidence of outperformance here <laughs> and they they wrote we also note a drop in the significance level for Jensen's Alpha due to the higher volatility of Berkshire Hathaway's stock compared to that of its asset portfolio and it's like I I don't even know where to start with this like if if that's really the kind of thing that they're studying and looking at, I think they've already missed the boat to begin with, right? I just there there doesn't seem to be uh, much much there. But to your to your point, going back a, a page, using Fama and French's industry classifications, they note that that Berkshire's port, portfolio is tilted toward a couple of industries, but they again cite the fact that this under diversification is consistent with the presumption of an information advantage, but it's limited. To Buffett's circle of confidence. And they're using his own term, right? So they, they've clearly done at least some reading and reference here, but it just completely misses the point. And so this is where I want to get into some of the, the takeaways that I had from it, which is that investor overconfidence and executive overconfidence, which they, they acknowledge in here, outside of the realm of, uh, exercising options and selling stock, that executive overconfidence might be uh, better limited to an analysis of operating decisions, right? Should I pursue this acquisition? Should I build this new factory? Should I explore this new strategy, et cetera, et cetera, where there is undoubtedly good evidence of, of overconfidence among executives there. And likewise, investor overconfidence is very real and it's very problematic and there's tons of evidence for it. I mean, the the constant activity and constant churning of everyday investors, retail investors, professional investors, active management writ large is, is an everyday real life laboratory that is evidence of investor overconfidence. Because every time you buy or sell, if it's going to work in your advantage, you have to be right and the other side has to be wrong. Or you have to have some sort of edge, some sort of time horizon that gives you advantage, something. And if you're making trades every day or dozens of trades every day, week, month, whatever the case may be, uh, you're more than likely exhibiting some degree of overconfidence for for the vast, vast majority of people. But that didn't come up in this paper. And that was really disappointing to me. I mean, I think it just misses the entire point of the strategy. I mean, at one point, they cited that because analysts are often downgrading the stock as Buffett is buying it, and because Institutional investors are often downgrading the stock when Buffett's buying it. That somehow bolsters their point. Again, like I couldn't—I read it two and three times. I couldn't quite figure out how it was written and and what the point exactly they were trying to make was. But that is exactly Buffett's point. Is like he wants to be buying something when it's getting cheaper and when other people are selling it and when sell-side analysts are downgrading it. Like that doesn't have anything to do with anyone else's overconfidence or Buffett's overconfidence. It has everything to do with Buffett's superior analysis and his different and better holding period and different and his and better, behavioral edge. Exactly. His behavioral edge and his different and better liability structure, right? Because he can hold these assets over periods of time when other people feel that they can't. So I, I just thought it was a very loosely written argument and very strange and, and very different. And the other... And different, and, and not a good way. The other argument I want to make uh, beyond the overconfidence issue, which which you guys can chime in on and come back to, is that um, y- there is this implicit implicit argument in the in the paper that all you had to do was buy these stocks like the minute or the day or the, even the week. I think that that Berkshire files its thirteen F, and
0: you know we we've
1: seen this argument a lot out there. And I well, think, that wasn't an
0: argument. That was the study, right? That was well, their sure. point. They studied well, the results and it said it had something like five percent alpha.
1: Sure, and 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 that's probably again, I'm not disputing the math. I haven't done the math to divide. Deval- I mean, I would probably have some quibbles with how exactly they were calculating the excess. Yeah, they weren't
0: purely measuring alpha versus the S and P. It was like right. a factor based it, it was a factor based yeah. thing, and
1: yeah, yeah, right. So I, I would probably have some issues with that. But the point is, you're right. Like. I have a huge issue with the conclusion of the paper being that the market underreacts to Berkshire's disclosures of new positions. And all you had to do, you idiots, is go out and buy exactly what Buffett does when he buys it, and you're going to get the same results. Like nothing could be further from the truth, right? There there are basically. Well, no, they didn't
0: say the same results. They said you could get much better results than the S&P.
1: Fine. Important qualification, though. I don't know. At one point, let me see... Um, I thought they said I, I did make. this said, quote of they it.
0: they said it was close to the same results.
1: Yeah, fine. Which very um, well
0: might be true, because most well, of the returns is. driven by the longer term holdings anyway.
1: A hundred percent, but I'll have to find the exact quote. But yeah, it it the the point is that if you were to do that mechanically, right, and you had the exact same liability structure as Berkshire did, the same quality, quantity, and duration of capital that Berkshire and you were going to somehow tie yourself to the mass to resist the siren song of selling at the worst possible times, then yes, of course, you could generate whatever the returns on paper said they were going to be. But nobody has that. Nobody has that discipline. Nobody has that behavioral edge. Nobody has that temperament. Nobody has that capital. And so this is, to me, kind of a self-defeating argument. And in a a broader sense, I've always had a big issue with the notion of cloning someone else's results. And by cloning, I mean like exactly mimicking their results. I have absolutely no problem. I think it makes all the sense in the world to say, okay, Buffett or whomever is a great investor. I respect the process that's going on over there. They do good work. I'm going to look at what they're buying and selling and see if that can inform something that I'm trying to do within my own capabilities, within my own capital, within my own circle of competence, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Great. That makes total sense. But if you're going to literally clone someone else and clone means to take something and biologically replicate it, right? I think that's the worst possible idea because you have not done the work. You are not going to have the conviction. You are not going to have the same temperament. You are not going to have the same behavioral advantages. You are not going to have the same analytical insights. And you are not going to have the same conviction to hold on or buy more when things get ugly. And you sure as heck aren't going to have the same capital and the same quality and duration of capital that Berkshire has. Right? So why, why is this notion of like, oh, we should just copy Buffett or copy everybody and, and do it the exact same way? Like, You should be trying to copy the elements of his process and his structure that work for you. And you should be trying to seek what he sought when he was trying to become the best investor who ever lived, not trying to just blatantly copy him and clone him. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, we've talked about this a decent amount. You can't outsource conviction you can't just do munger said explicitly you know like if you want to be the best investor you have to find what works for you (laughs) um you know i obviously did not quote that exactly right but i think everyone has to find what works for them in markets find what fits their personality find what has some sort of like fundamental rationale so there's plenty you can learn from buffett on that front but if you merely wanted to just buy what buffett buys you should just buy shares of Berkshire and go to sleep easy every night.
2: (laughs) That's
1: a good point. I mean, if you really want to do this, you're right. I mean, that that goes unaddressed in the paper. But yeah, that's certainly (laughs) a a decent option is to just buy Berkshire and express I was wondering,
0: one one of the notes I wrote to myself uh, reading this thing was maybe a lot of these people who institutional investors who are selling it at the time of Buffett's disclosure actually own shares in Berkshire. And they're like, "Eh, I don't need to own this twice.
1: Well, I, I suppose that's one explanation, although I kind of doubt it. I think the ownership of Berkshire and that crowd is probably a little bit thinner than it should be. But who knows? I have no no idea. No idea what the numbers would look like on that.
0: So I had a few things here. Um, I, and I picked up on a couple of weird things, but but maybe some some bigger ones. Um, one of the weird ones I, I, I thought is interesting, and maybe it's something to think about, They said if there was one factor they could identify which was deterministic of Buffett's uh, returns, it's that he under-indexed, he essentially avoided entirely firms with high asset growth. And I thought that was a really interesting point because that could cover uh, growth as a space where you didn't go into high growth, but also like capital intensive firms who might be in the wrong phase of a capital cycle. Um, And I thought that was a pretty powerful point. I, I kind of looked at a bunch of companies that had, had a rough couple of years. High asset growth is definitely one of the hallmarks of some of those situations. Um, So I thought that was like an interesting throwaway line that maybe had a lot of value behind it, <laughs> incidentally yeah, agreed. enough. Agreed. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at the industry chart. I thought that was so interesting. It was in the appendices of the paper. Yep. Um, And... I think there were a couple notable takeaways I had, which is, you know, there's obviously a lot of persistence, but there's some interesting evolution over the years. So like railroad and transport were like the least owned, and well, the second least owned. And well, we know what he thinks of railroads now, right? It's it's a core piece of the permanent portfolio. Um, and chemicals was the least owned, and he's actually invested, I'd say, you know, a decent amount of capital in chemicals over the the last decade uh, with the Lubrizol acquisition and, and a couple of public holdings that he's gone in and out of and in um, consumer slash technology where n- consumer was almost non-existent. Technology was non-existent. Um, if you look at their portfolio today, I mean, you know, Apple, you could call a consumer te- company or a technology company, but man, it's pretty important. And there's plenty of technology beneath it. And there's a consumer staple beneath it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And then, you know, we're recording this on April thirteenth. Buffett spent three hours on CNBC yesterday. and the paper numerous points emphasizes. and in this appendix, it's very clear banking was his most preferred sector. And I don't know the I don't I don't know the exact quote from yesterday because I can't get the CNBC Pro interview, but he basically said banking is a pretty bad investment and he only owns. Bank of America these days. When he was asked why, he's like, "Yeah, hey, like Brian Moynihan." Was the impression I got from from the yeah, version I saw.
1: That's pretty much um, what he
0: said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that was by far his most prominent sector that he invested in, according to this paper and the way they determine sectors. Um, and I thought that was a, a pretty uh, interesting uh, change. And then you know this holding period thing. I was like, "Wow, one year! God, one year!" Only 20% of the stocks were held for more than two years. That was mind blowing to me. And you know, I was reflecting on this. One other thing from yesterday's uh appearance was that Taiwan Semi, he yep. sold yeah, Taiwan good Semi one. very fast. I think that was like a six-month holding period. It had to
1: be right around there, yeah.
0: Yeah. And you know, he said he sold it because of geopolitical fears. I personally I think that's that's nonsense because there's no reason to have Been incrementally more fearful of the geopolitical environment with respect to Taiwan semi at the date he sold it versus when he bought it. In fact, one could make the case that you would have had you could have had more fear at around the time he bought the stick. Let's leave that aside. Um, It was a really quick gain. I think he's very willing to be Mr. Market's business partner, and it's one of the things I feel I have to get better at myself. But. There's a very big difference, and this is what I was saying to myself, there's a very big difference between thinking long-term and holding long-term. It's more important to think long-term than force yourself to hold long-term. This is me editorializing here. This is something that I was thinking as I was looking at these numbers. Um, Buffett's been very willing to trade in and out of positions. In fact, one of the bizarre uh semantic choices that this paper made was to call him a traitor at numerous junctures <laughs> i i think he'd you know vomit in his mouth at the thought but yeah. um you know one could think long term but you need not hold long term he got a really good gain in taiwan semi pretty fast so why not leave you know maybe he was expecting that kind of gain over like two years um i don't know the answer geopolitics might be just something to wave his hand and, and give You know something, something to Becky Quick to have a headline about, but um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, Thinking long term versus versus holding long term.
1: So I'll I'll jump in because you raised two or three excellent points there. I will say that I think the point about high asset growth is enormous, uh, and I think it it I think it was AQR and Cliff Asness and colleagues who wrote a paper about you know if you had to really dumb this down into one factor it was the lack of change, right? Like, quote, unquote, high quality. And so you're right. And and Buffett has qualitatively described this as a search for good businesses that won't change, right? So I think by definition, a business that's undergoing really, really rapid asset growth, or any kind of growth, but as demonstrated by asset growth, is in an industry and in a business that is subject to high rates of change. And I think the base rate for businesses that a, are in industries undergoing high rates of change, and B, have to fund really rapid asset growth, I bet those base rates are pretty poor relative to the things he thinks he can find and execute on. So that's point number one, which I agree is like a throwaway line that was worth the price of admission, so to speak, of this paper. Two, on semi on Taiwan Semiconductor, I actually disagree. I'll take the other side of that because I'm pretty sure that in the holding period, the brief holding period that he owned Taiwan Semi was Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan Uh, lots of very aggressive war games, including the response to her visit to Taiwan. Uh, I I don't think geopolitics is a throwaway kind of CYA excuse at all in this case. I think it's really scary. I think it really portends big, important things for the world as to what that means. I mean, could, could Buffett be wrong? Absolutely. Of course he could. But I think what he's doing is saying you know, a 1% chance of a zero is is not worth it, right? Because anything's times zero is zero. And, and look, I mean, when and if Taiwan is invaded, uh, you know, Taiwan semiconductors, Western shareholders are probably not going to have a great day. So... Um,
0: sure, I meant that more in terms of like... I I think the quarter in which he purchased the stake was when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Right, I agree. But that was a different. I'm just saying, arguably, not necessarily the case. But I, I don't, I don't buy the case to be that much more concerned about it six months later that you'd be a seller of something that you bought before. Like I don't necessarily think the heat was, was all that different. It was a concern at that time. I think uh, you know it was raised by a lot of analysts at the time that it was uh, definitely one of the bigger risks there.
1: It was, but I think the evidence just became so much clearer over the ensuing months that this bolstered China's case in their own mind, and that this uh, and look, I think another thing worth considering is that you know this is not the kind of decision that he tends to react to in a day, right? I mean, I, I distinctly remember it in the case of the airlines with COVID right, where you could argue whether he was right or wrong or somewhere in between to sell the airline stocks in April of 2020. But he sold them in April of 2020, not March of 2020, and certainly not February of 2020, right? So he tends to be extremely thoughtful and deliberate. And so, yes, even though by almost anyone else's standards, he's acting quickly and acting with big conviction and in big size. But, you know, as the evidence comes in, he's definitely the type to, quote unquote, sleep on it, right? He's going to think about it for probably something more like weeks or months rather than hours or days. So in my opinion, I think it was probably sensible and likely that he just digested the developments as 2022 unfolded as it pertained to Taiwan and reevaluated the risk in owning that investment.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair. I was just, yeah, I guess as far as I see it, I, it's hard to imagine a. Uh, I don't know. I, I could, could go on and on about that, but yeah, I, I mean, we, just, we
1: can we can argue. I, there were some people that were saying that end.
0: like Russia's invasion was a test run for what China's ambitions were in Thailand and in Taiwan, and that um, the lack of quick success for Russia may have cooled China to thinking about an invasion, because it's a lot harder than you'd think, even in a case where, you know, Putin was like, we'll get this done in three days. So I I just think you can make both cases. It just seems like a out of an explanation. But
1: even Um, in in there, you had Xi Jinping, you know, cementing his leadership basically forever and lots of other things happening. So I, I don't know. Again, it's an interesting debate where we can't, Ever prove the counterfactual, so but whatever. The, but I, the I think amazing the,
0: part about it is that he changed his mind so quickly on the position anyway that he that he's willing to just say like right. you know, and, and and it could be because it was up so much, but he's he's like peace out, I'm moving on to my next. Uh, yeah, investment.
1: and so that's a great point and something that I'd love to test in an alternate universe is and and one of the great tests of an investor, in my opinion, is you know in this case it probably made it easier, at least it would have made it easier for most people to say all right. You know, this situation's gotten worse, in my opinion, and I'm showing a gain on it. So I'm just going to take this gain and move on to the next thing that's easier and better and safer and more reliable. It would have been really interesting to test it in a parallel universe where, for whatever reason, the stock was way down from where he bought it. Because 99% of people, in my opinion, would be more likely to hang on and try to get back to break even or something or, or, you know, save some face so to speak, if they were underwater on that investment rather than sell it in the face of the exact same evidence, right? And I don't think he's one of them. I think that's what makes him so great. And it's what makes a lot of the greats so great is that they're willing to do the right thing regardless of the prior actions, the commitment bias that might be in place, the sunk costs that have already been expended, the losses they're showing on paper that are now about to be realized. Um, And I think it would have been fascinating. But you're right. I mean, to me, the best takeaway from this is just reemphasizing the point that you have to let, you have to constantly be turning over rocks to find that handful of big winners. And I think it was this year's shareholder letter, right? Where he said, you know, an investment every other year, you know, a couple per decade was in the entirety of his performance record, right? The entirety of his success was those relatively small handful of decisions every 10 years. But there were dozens and hundreds of tiny little decisions that just didn't work out and didn't become consequential over that period. And so it wasn't like he was sitting there completely inactive. It wasn't like he was sitting there just waiting for that one thing to come along. But when it did come along, he seized on it. And when it was clear that it wasn't the big one, it wasn't working out. I mean, think about something like IBM, right? I mean, IBM could have turned into Apple, but it sure as heck didn't. And he moved on, right? Or he owned Wells Fargo forever and he moved on. And you know that that's the key takeaway for me is that you have to have this really good mix between behavior temperament holding period rational analysis probability weighting of opportunities and, and marrying that all up into the bigger portfolio it's just such a fascinating dance
0: absolutely and you know i'll say this for myself again just to kind of beat the point into my own brain but i think it's worth saying also you know i think a lot of us who want to be like great uh long-term oriented investors think that means we just you know buy and then don't sell exactly exactly and And that's just not true yeah just not true at all and it had such a good good contrast between ibm and apple right he bought both and apple you you know to that point about one investment a decade that was the special one right that generated You know, maybe the banks uh, in the beginning of the last decade were were an important source of return, some of those PREF deals. But Apple, on a cumulative dollar basis, did way more than the combined yep. investment in the banks during the financial crisis. Yep. Um, and it's fascinating to think about. Uh, I think a lot of people put too much pressure on being right on everything. Um, but, you know, one or two big things that you get right could make up for a lot of mistakes along the way.
1: Yeah, it's such a fascinating example of like the advantage that public markets have over private ones, which is as an investor it's such a more frictionless efficient way to allocate capital between opportunities where for, you know, next to nothing or very very low transaction costs, you can kind of patiently turn over rocks until you find great opportunities and when you realize you're wrong or when conditions change, you can reverse course and get out of your mistake relatively easily, right? And it's such a beautiful overlooked advantage that it's worth reiterating it here
0: i think yeah agreed I, I think that was like perhaps my Like, i'm glad you latched onto it right away with asking us the question i'm sorry i couldn't make the quiz a little more fun and in, in guessing myself uh just let it be known my guess would have been five years so
1: yeah my guess was going to be higher than one year is the median holding period for sure and i think that's why it's worth reiterating that you know the the lion's share of the capital certainly was in that 20% of stocks that were held more than 2 years but in terms of the number of stocks and the you know uh, what's going on if you just rank them by you know each stock is it gets an equal weighting yeah it's it's pretty clear right i mean it's only a year and there's quite a bit of turnover at the low end
0: yeah you know and it made me wonder if there's I like we can't prove it at all. I wonder if there's any single instance of Buffett having bought a stock and reversed on it before having ever had a file a 13F well, I on bet
1: that there one are. security. Yeah, that's a fascinating question, but I would think there has to be plenty of that going
0: on, right? Yeah, be- that's really interesting, and it's something I need to think about for myself because I've had this like disinclination to act, and I had this rule which I've actually killed for myself that was i do not judge an investment within the first year of making it uh wait to see whether the information demonstrates whether i'm right or not and you know i i for several reasons have abandoned that but um hey if if, if buffett could do it hell i i should be too yeah not, not to say that i could do anything right in the way that buffett does but sure it means that why is that a why 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 should that be you know a sacred cow that all of us who aspire to be long-term investors hold out there.
1: Right. Yeah. it's a great point. And again, I have no evidence for this, but my guess is it's not happening every quarter or even every year where something is bought and completely 180 and sold before it's ever filed in a 13F. Uh, But I bet it happens multiple times per decade would be my guess, right? Just by the nature of it. And certainly in my case, to your point, Elliot, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to say, all right, I'm looking at the business over a three to five year time horizon, right? I think beyond five years, you know, that's the hope, right? Is I certainly want to have confidence that the business will still exist and still be prospering at some level five to 10 years out. But like, I can't get too specific, right? The base rate of any forecast at, at my level is going to be, uh, you know, pretty broad. Like the the base rate of accuracy is going to be low. The the forecast itself is going to have to be pretty broad beyond that. So you're right. Like, well, why should I be, completely reevaluating things inside of say 6 months right like what is two quarters 180 days going to really teach me about anything but there've been a handful of cases where uh you know in the last 10 years call it where I've reversed course inside of uh you know 3 to 6 months and there are definitely a couple of other cases where I should have right so that's the bigger lesson to mm-hmm. me is that, is that I absolutely should have been taking a more self-critical look at decisions I just made and where I probably had enough evidence and enough uh, contrary evidence to say, this isn't going how I planned. This isn't what I thought I was doing. I was wrong. Conditions have changed, et cetera, et cetera. And even though it's only been you know, 14 weeks or seven months or whatever, who cares what sort of arbitrary time horizon it's been since I was buying this thing, I need to turn tail and go the other way.
0: Do you know of any examples where Buffett disclosed a holding in something, sold it pretty quickly, and then bought it back later in a more meaningful way for a successful investment? Mm, Well,
1: I'm pretty sure he's done it with Disney, right? Because he got shares... via Cap Cities and then sold them but I think he bought Disney shares back again years later and then sold them again so I guess that would sort of count right I mean there was an acquisition involved so it's a little bit different right because it wasn't exclusively his decision the first time but you know I think he's spoken about it and said you know even though my reasoning for it was pretty legitimate uh I was basically wrong and i would have been better off just sitting on these disney shares for all these years right and he talks about i think it was in the late would have been late 1950s i guess Um, maybe the mid 1950s when he had lunch in california with walt disney himself and he's like I was super impressed. He's one of the best business people I've ever met in my life. And all I had to do was go out and buy some Disney shares that day and sit on them. (laughs) It would have been amazing, right? And he's obviously correct about that. But yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples of something where he's bought something, sold it, and then bought it back. I can't think of too many off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, because I would think there's tremendous value in longevity whereby you have experience with something, know it really well. And I know he's cited longevity as a source of what got him into several different investments, you know, having read their annual reports for decades, knowing it really well, being ready to act when the time to act came about. But um, sometimes, I, I don't know, I was just thinking more for myself, there are situations where you could leave something aside and be in better position if, and when the right opportunity arises, uh, if you're just not thinking about it the right way at the time right. you buy it, to leave right. quickly. Um, yeah, and
1: to, to your point, a, a related question, which is an interesting one, is you know he was willing to sell Disney, he was willing to sell Wells Fargo, uh, and those were kind of, I guess, somewhat similar investments in both size and importance and holding period of. I guess Wells Fargo was probably held for longer, but. Um, he was willing to sell IBM, uh, but he was not willing to sell Coke, right? Which he's talked about. You know, it got pretty expensive for a while there after he owned it, and the returns to holding it were pretty poor. And he talked yesterday to your point earlier, Elliot, about holding on to B of A, uh, which he still does, which is a very big position for him and very important. And and will there become a point where he would have wished he had sold? B of A or sold more Apple or whatever the case may be. And it gets tough because when you're this big in the stock, it's not so easy. I mean, you want to talk about underperform or underreacting to these these filings and these disclosures. I mean, it, it still does matter when it's known that Buffett's out there selling it. I mean, it's tricky, right? It takes quite a long time to unwind a position of that size in the market. So it's not all that easy. And it would be interesting to see that done in a parallel universe, too.
0: It would be interesting to see the study in reverse, like how do securities that Buffett sells perform over the next like six months, 12 months, three years, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. My
1: guess is that that would be an interesting study. And my guess is that they would be average to slightly below average, you know, compared however you would do it to the S&P 500 or whatever. And yeah, actually, to your point, Elliot, about yesterday, it's worth... Uh, watching those clips of that interview in Japan, if you can, I think it also makes, it's an interesting commentary that he actually went all the way over to Japan, right? I mean, he very, very rarely travels, uh, internationally for long periods of time like that. So I think in, you know, particularly at this stage, right? I mean, he's, he's not, I don't think he's flying and traveling anywhere near as much as he did 10 or 20 years ago. And to go all the way to Japan is a very, uh, big statement, I think, in my opinion. And, uh, so that's point number one. Point number two is he did talk a little bit about the banks. And, uh, you know, this goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is, you know, and again, this is not any sort of specific investment advice by any means. But in basically every bank that I've looked at, um, you know, they everyone kind of assumed coming into this last, call it two years, that when ev- when rates eventually went up, it was going to be just a great time. For the banking industry because rates had been so low for so long it was just really hard to earn a good spread and if rates would finally revert to quote unquote normal salad days would come again for all the banks and so the problem of course is that the rates have shot up in the last you know 18 months call it and uh not only do banks have this issue of you know large unrealized losses and they're held to maturity investment portfolios which is fine i mean they're big losses and in almost all cases they're going to be weathered uh and they will actually be held to maturity and they won't represent any sort of permanent loss of capital they are going to represent a significant drag on the bank's income statement for sure over that period of time and they were certainly a suboptimal allocation of capital with perfect hindsight i mean you know it was just not a great idea and this isn't just 2020 Monday morning quarterback, I mean, it was just not a great idea to take on a lot of duration in 2020, 2021, early 2022. It was just the wrong time to do it. And not every bank did, but those that did are suffering the consequences. So I think that was kind of point number one that he was making between the lines. Point number two, which you know he also kind of got to a little bit obliquely, um, or maybe this is just my interpretation, is that look, a lot of banks benefited for so long from having... Very low deposit betas, meaning the deposit rate they were paying changed very slowly relative to the interest rate environment, and so a lot of banks got away for a very long time with with people and companies saying, "Well, I have all this money sitting in cash, earning something close to zero, but screw it, like I don't care. Rates are really low. Everybody's in the same boat. Like who cares?" Now that rates have shot up, now that things like Silicon Valley Bank have happened and highlighted this whole problem. In my opinion, that's going to change and a lot more people are going to be putting a lot more money into money market funds or T-bills or whatever and taking it out of these beautiful low-cost deposit accounts that the banks have been benefiting from for a long period of time. So that's by definition going to squeeze their net interest margin. And then you throw in on top of it, you know, just good old-fashioned things like a credit cycle that I'm not predicting a recession. I have no comment on our odds for a recession. I, I don't have much confidence in my own predictions there anyway. But if and when we get a credit cycle and have to take a lot of provisions uh, to deal with bad loans and bad credits as they come up, that's not going to be a lot of fun either. So I think no matter whether I'm right or wrong about that analysis and right or wrong in kind of paraphrasing uh, what he was trying to say yesterday about banks and his comments about B of A, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? Because he didn't allocate any capital of any size uh, in recent days to the, to the opportunity that would have been there as far as we
0: know, but I'd imagine that. Yeah, I agree.
1: I mean, I guess you could find out in the 13F that he was doing something in March, but I think he would have been uh, yep. less equivocal yesterday if that were the case.
0: Yeah, I said that largely in jest, but um, right, right, yeah, yeah. no, it, it was interesting to hear him speak so bl- bluntly about that. And, you know, I think it's just interesting to think about the evolution of what is and is not within a circle of competence and what is and is not investable over time. I think there are definitely some rigidities with which people uh, impose on themselves because Buffett did as much. And yet there's, you know, some degree to which slowly but surely you can broaden your horizons. You could broaden your competencies. You could broaden your um, or or forget about broadening. Um, You could see fundamental change happen in a given area. And perhaps those are some of the most profound investment opportunities. Like Apple absolutely would have been uninvestable to Buffett for a long time. And just the kind of actualization of it becoming investable might have been the sign that there were good returns to be had. The counterpoint to myself in that is the contrast you made with IBM, right? That was not a good uh, time to invest in, could time or place to invested in tech. Well, it was a good time and place to invest in technology. IBM right. was not just not IBM, but those yeah. chips. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I think IBM was just
1: kind of its own thing, but
0: yeah, he followed it long enough, but uh, yeah, probably was.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, that's all I had on it. John, do you have any closing thoughts or comments on the, the mess we've created here?
2: <laughs> well, I guess just one, uh, observation on the Buffett comment. Uh, was there anything he actually sold and then bought back? I wonder if Oxy would uh, qualify for that.
0: So he are you saying because he bought the the well, he bought common, sold, bought the preferreds and then rolled that into common and has been buying a ton since? Is that the sequence? I'm not too close to it. I, I thought there were also
2: some sales along the way, but maybe not the whole position but i i do think he was he did trim it at some point i'm not sure though
1: it, was it before uh they came to him looking for his support for the acquisition they were doing or is that unrelated because
2: i haven't i, I want to say it either. was in 2020 that he was trimming but uh, maybe i rem- i don't remember that correctly but yeah I I, I do feel like he's been pretty flexible on the uh, oil and gas thesis where, you know, basically um, he wasn't really excited about it, but recently seems to, you know, have uh, committed quite a bit of capital
0: to that. Yeah. And to, to the point I was trying to like, see if it was there. I mean, the situation changed dramatically from where things were in 2020 to where things were in the beginning of this year when he started buying uh oxy every day basically
2: yeah yeah exactly and and i think just going back to your point on um taiwan semi um you know it's i think both of you guys um you know make make great points on that and sometimes i feel like it can also just be the facts may not have changed, but one's assessment of the facts changes, or one becomes a little more risk aware. Um, you know, I know that that happens to me a lot, um, especially if a position grows in size, I tend to really um, internalize the risks a lot more. And uh, even if no new information comes out, you may just kind of decide that, uh There is a risk that didn't seem like a big deal, but over time, you just assess it
0: differently. Yeah, I agree. Makes a lot of sense. Definitely, definitely fair.
2: Great. Well, uh, yeah, I I don't really have much to say on that paper uh, beyond what you guys already said. Um, You know, I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty self-explanatory and... um, I think the paper has a lot of uh problems with it. So I think we'll just
1: it did. There were just some interesting nuggets in there too. It wasn't all bad. It was definitely worth worth a skim despite some some real head scratchers in there for
2: sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: I'm gonna well, dwell we're... on the holding period and the uh the asset growth points, because I mean those those are fascinating to me. I, I think I don't know. i I'd love to hear from some of your listeners in, in on Twitter or an email you know what you would have guessed the average holding period is or was um, I, I I'd imagine most people would guess a lot longer than one year,
2: yeah, 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 I agree,
0: yeah. and maybe that is the
2: most interesting actually takeaway for those of us who kind of um you know associate Buffett with long-term investing and that association is uh is not out of place but even so you know there's nothing wrong with uh with getting out of positions um quickly you know and I, I think that's just something that um everyone should be aware of uh especially if you you know find that you made a mistake um why why hold on to something just to um you know, fulfill some kind of uh, artificial uh, holding period.
0: hmm
2: 100%. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, guys, for another uh, great discussion. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye for now.